0: Bogdanovich earned his keep in Hollywood as a director of films first and foremost, but he was perhaps more widely recognized for his efforts as a second-hand oral historian of Hollywood movies, emboldening their legacy through innumerable interviews and commentary tracks in which he would recite the stories passed on to him in perfect imitation of his legendary filmic mentors. Bogdanovich's love for the movies is embedded throughout his work. Overt in various pastiches he made to early genre steeples during the height of his career, but also recognizable through more humble tips of the hat in otherwise non-nostalgic films. His reverence transcended the adage of imitation as the ultimate form of flattery, taking strides not just to pay tribute to the films and filmmakers of old, but to actively champion and preserve their legacies. At the tail end of his time working in television, Bogdanovich was approached to make a biographical film on the life and mysterious early death of beloved actress Natalie Wood. He was hesitant at first, having personally experienced what it's like to be sensationally depicted in a ripped-from-the-headline story. He was the recipient of an unflattering portrayal in Bob Fossey's crude retelling of Dorothy Stratton's horrific murder, not yet three years after her death. Despite Peter's initial trepidation towards making The Mystery of Natalie Wood, he felt his own experience as a subject of exploitation granted him some insight and authority on the matter, and would help him to avoid the same tasteless depictions expected from such material. After all, he said, somebody was going to make it, it might as well be him. The film is a strange but surprisingly effective mix of documentary and fiction, stringing together contemporary talking head interviews with recreated scenes of Wood's life and career beginning as a child actor in the studio system up until their questionable death off of Catalina Island. Whether or not Bogdanovich managed to evade the trappings of exploitative caricature is up for debate, but he does manage to produce yet another compelling portrait of corruptive Hollywood glamour. After finishing his stint in television and having dabbled again in a bit of documentary filmmaking, Bogdanovich returned to one of his earliest films thinking it needed an update. Directed by John Ford was first produced in 1971, around the same time The Last Picture Show was being edited for release. Bogdanovich had first met the legendary American director in the early 1960s when Ford was shooting his last western in his favorite locale, the awe-inspiring Monument Valley. Ford was a cantankerous old man mean and needling, borderline abusive, one might say. He took great pleasure in breaking down the spirits of a young Bogdanovich, much in the same way he had with John Wayne for 30 years. But in spite of all logic, Ford receives praise for these cruel acts, and from those he attacks, no less. Wayne is but one of the interviewees Bogdanovich sat down and talked to in 1969 for this initial documentary, joined by Henry Fonda and James Stewart, who recall similar tales of upbraiding with admiration and glee. Strangely enough, It's not hard to see why these men have such respect for Ford, as even Bogdanovich is able to frame his affronts as humorous and commanding, their extensions of his directorial persona, and evidently an important part in what made his film so ineffably great. When Bogdanovich returned to his filmic dedication of John Ford's life and legacy in 2006, he found it was missing pieces that, for practical reasons, could not have existed in Ford's lifetime. There was more of the story to tell, more of the man behind the facade to reveal, and more of his influence to be recorded. The gathered the initial interviews he used to contextualize Ford's directorial prowess and complemented them by shooting new testimonials with the most significant contemporary beneficiaries of his laurels. Martin Scorsese, Clint Eastwood, Spielberg, Walter Hill, not to mention surviving Ford collaborators Harry Carrier and Maureen O'Hara, flesh out the unspoken aspects of Ford's artistry. The detachment from the director gave space to weigh in on and analyze his motives and ideals as well as the ability to share stories previously unheard about the seemingly mythic figure of Hollywood directors. Bogdanovich's ability to reflect upon his own work, recognize how it can be improved, and then implementing those changes without disrupting the spirit or success of its initial incarnation, is one of the more adept and overlooked achievements of his career. 2006 would be the year of documentaries for Bogdanovich. For the same time he was completing his revamped version of Directed by John Ford, he was approached to document a subject he was initially quite unfamiliar with. Tom Petty and Heartbreakers were approaching the 30th anniversary of their unparalleled rock and roll success, and they wanted to get a big name director to document the history of their storied career. They sought out Bogdanovich, who agreed to meet with Petty and see about the offer. Being a fan of Cole Porter and Frank Sinatra primarily throughout his life, Bogdanovich hadn't so much as heard of Petty before becoming involved with the project, but he learned quickly. After their first meeting, Bogdanovich knew the only worthwhile way to tell the story of the Heartbreakers was to have Tom sit down and lay the whole thing out, which is exactly what he did. Running Down a Dream is an absolute mammoth of a music documentary. Twice the length of any previous Bogdanovich picture, it is a monumental catalog of the band's complete history up until that point. They had practically seen it all. The preeminence of rock throughout the 70s the swings of conservatism and corporate consumption in the 80s the fade out and vestiges of the genre lingering on into the 90s and the survival and prosperity of the band up until that day it was the kind of uncompromising film bogdanovich struggled to make throughout his career always having to cut away at vital sequences per the studio's requests but for running down a dream not an inch of necessary footage was removed even the songs play out in full giving you the complete mesmerizing experience of the heartbreakers music with the exhaustive accompaniment of their meteoric success conveyed in full. Ended his career with a documentary film, a conclusion for a filmmaker so indebted to the history of Hollywood and the preservation of their legends. In interviews, Bogdanovich speaks often about his father, a painter who passed on to his son a great love for the arts, but especially the movies. Korslav Bogdanovich took his son to see the classics, the films that made him first fall in love with the movies, silent films. Primarily, he took Peter to see the great comedians, Chaplin, Lloyd, and Keaton in particular. The influence of these slapstick giants feature heavily in Bogdanovich's work, from the incredible comic stunt work in What's Up Doc to the punctual pratfalls permeating the likes of Nickelodeon and Noises Off. Bogdanovich was approached by Charles Cohen to produce a documentary on Buster Keaton after having acquired the rights to his filmography for restoration and distribution. The resultant film, The Great Buster, A Celebration, functions as an extensive overview of Keaton's life and career, covering both the triumphant highs and miserable lows of the screen comic's singular body of work. With access to almost everything Keaton ever made on hand, Bogdanovich was able to present a document which covers not only his most significant works in a profound new clarity thanks to Cohen's restoration efforts, no less, but his lesser known sound period as well, also covering the collection of numerous educational shorts and television commercials he made in the twilight of his career. The most significant deviation Bogdanovich makes in the film's presentation is taking the most prosperous period of Keaton's career and putting it at the end of the narrative, instead of at the middle, where it actually took place. Bogdanovich wanted the film to go out on a high note for it to truly be a celebration of Keaton's career, as opposed to ending on a more deflated fall from grace he experienced by the time of his death in 1966. Because Keaton passed at a relatively early age than his contemporaries, he was one of the few idols Bogdanovich wasn't able to personally meet and chronicle. But his enthusiasm is never compromised by this absence of personal familiarity and the great Buster is perhaps the finest example of Bogdanovich's dedication to champion the mastery of old hollywood legends throughout his own legendary career there is so much to the life of peter Bogdanovich that analyzing his films cannot fully convey his textual compilations of interviews with various actors and directors of the old guard are invaluable resources for posterity as well as the secondhand accounts he's preserved in wildly entertaining retellings of anecdotes passed on to him from additional Hollywood luminaries. He's done more to consecrate the career of Orson Welles than even his greatest admirers could hope to match, overseeing the completion of not just one, but two of Welles' films, one which had fallen into complete obscurity and another which had yet to see the light of day. You may even recognize Bogdanovich from various DVD introductions, or for the short time he had a supporting role in HBO's The Sopranos. He started his career as an actor and proceeded to act throughout his life, whether it was an occasional appearance in front of the camera or through his direction as the great Ernst Lubitsch had before him. Bogdanovich's career is too rich and expansive to convey in a neat and comprehensive package, which is likely the reason so many have centered his story around his flagship successes in the 1970s. But that was really just the beginning for Bogdanovich. The heights of Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon are the films which define Bogdanovich's legacy But his real triumphs are the lifelong dedication he maintained to the celebration and veneration of the movies and the artist who made them. Whether he did so through his own movies, through books, or by means of his matchless affability in interviews and unrivaled ability to recount a story, Bogdanovich's life was defined by the movies, which he paid back in kind throughout every step of his career.
1: The Twin Geeks 153, uh, Peter Doc Danovich. That, hard to say. Peter Doc uh, series. Um, we're we're finishing up our tribute and our uh, comprehensive take on all of his films. Uh, how are you feeling about it?
0: uh you know, a, a bit bittersweet, but also very relieved. You know, to to reach the end. This feels like a really significant achievement. Again, I, I was I was very excited last week to go over. All of those films that literally nobody has kind of covered in scene, but at the same time, I think it was important to touch on these ones too, these documentaries, because in a way, I think they kind of reflect the importance and the ideals of Bogdanovich's career, maybe even more so than his uh, films he's more known for, you know. Yeah, uh, certainly I'm maybe
1: more than the level. TV
2: features. <laughs>
0: Well, well, even the even the classics, even like the, the, the homages and stuff and the throwbacks to the, like the screwball films and such and, you know, that he did, uh, because these are really the things I think that Bogdanovich is kind of recognized and known for these, these testimonies, these preservations of, of the the legacies, you know, the retelling of the stories of, you know, the old Hollywood figures. Uh, as, as they were through those, you know, those figures, you know, and documenting them in a way. That's what he was always kind of doing with his, you know, homages, you know, his throwbacks and stuff. And here he's just, you know, that this is the area, the the field in which he did so literally as well.
1: If he were starting today, he might primarily work in documentary. Now that it's the most um, not populous genre, but the genre being made the most right now, um, you could see someone like him coming in as a preservationist and, and deciding there's a lot of good work to do um easier now to edit yes. than it was when he started so uh documentary yeah. very accessible to filmmakers
0: there's also just a greater market for documentaries nowadays than of course in the 70s and 80s and such you know they, they they finally reached their the the their recognition that they kind of always deserved
2: yeah
1: they show in um, theaters and they're very popular in theaters actually uh, it's yeah. yeah big category right it's, now
2: Hmm.
0: His first his first documentary, which we'll I guess circle back to, was uh not shown too much because of rights issues and stuff and his ability to uh kind of assemble it and, and show it without any issues because, you know, of, of all the various films you know, and yeah. clips that'd be involved in showing them. And so when he went back and, and you know, was able to make it proper, you know, and kinda of realize it in full, uh, you know, I think it took that many years, you know, for it to happen, what, like thirty years for him to come back to it finally. <laughs>
1: I do feel like documentaries should almost, like many of them should be like living updated docs. Like um, they should all be Kanye albums, sell us the documentary and then keep working on it. Once we get like news updates, like so many of them are outdated when they're on current events by the time they come out. That uh, I think think continuous labor on like uh, updating them every 10 years or so, not the worst idea.
0: Certainly. Uh, but to start, we are kind of going to dive back into the TV period a little bit here because we had this weird, like, hybrid film that uh, we, we could have covered in the TV episode, but it was kind of already very full as it was. And and the realization that this was kind of like half bi- biography documentary with talking heads and stuff and half, like, you know, recreation, you know, uh, film was, was was kind of this Weird oddity that stands out in his career and can kind yeah. of in either category here, uh, but we we thought it best to kind of use as a transitionary point between the TV films and the documentaries.
1: Plus, we had done like uh, six different films, and I mean, uh, this one being like three hours long. In addition a, to those, would have been a whole it's a
0: chunker, lot. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like the Look,
0: we 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 slaved to get get those. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, we did it in person. If you haven't listened, go back and and listen to that because it is a special episode. But also, we put a ton of work into that. And uh, I think yeah. like this yeah. is like the movie but, equivalent uh, of like a doorstopper novel. Like like this is a chunker that uh, has a lot to say.
0: It it does. It's very interesting as well because um, as I said in the intro, there, Bogdanovich was kind of hesitant to make it at first because yeah. he kind of had been on the the side of that. He knew what it was like to. Have so much sensation and 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 the film does kind of still do that it falls into that kind of like you know uh bizarre like like hollywood aggrandizing mythologizing of of these dead starlets you know people who, who you know the women who died at a relatively early age in the case of natalie wood not not quite as early as like dorothy stratton or monroe Marilyn monroe who they draw parallels to mm. in the film in a kind of corny way um very Courtney, Still, yeah. she she kind of fits in that same vein because of the mis yeah, uh, because of the mystery surrounding her her death, her unexpected death, uh, drowning, alleged drowning. I don't know. It's it's still not really sure what happened. There's a lot of un- uncertainty around the the circumstances that goes into it that that, that went into her death, and people still speculate nowadays. Uh, so it it's definitely a subject of interest, and there's you know that that's mystery and intrigue that's inherent to the material, but it does have that icky exploitation angle to it as well, where you're kind of like aggrandizing, you know, this, this person's death and and, and kind of blowing up this idea and, and drawing these parallels to things that aren't necessarily there and, and making the tragedy of the their life, you know, the, at the end of their life, really the, the, the defining element around it, which everything builds. Um, And yeah, so very it's like in spite of
1: very much defined by their death in the way that uh, a lot of these Hollywood starlets have been unfortunately not defined by their lives and and what they did so much as their lives become like a a series of I always knew the water was dangerous um I it was always foretold that uh the water would get me I knew I didn't want to be in it you know uh,
0: it's it's really it, it starts out really Corny. Like like the film sets the script sets it up for failure off the bat because it basically it opens on a fortune telling scene. L- Lana Wood, yes. Natalie Wood's sister, tells tells this story in an interview of a a gypsy fortune teller, as she says, telling her mother that her, her her daughter is going to die in in a drowning accident, which just like shoots any chance for like believability in the narrative. Just like right off the bat, it just it just kills it because even if there is truth to that idea and even if that's, like, kind of an important uh, explanation or, you know, like, like justification for, in, in Lana's mind for why, why her sister had this death, uh, you know, or, or it was even true. It, it, mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's still, it, like, inherently ridiculous idea to place such importance on, on it as if it was preordained in this way. And, and the film definitely framed it like that. That's the the first shot in in the recreation is her is Natalie's mother seeing this fortune teller and it's it's very cartoonish a, a lot of the melodrama in the film is played to to a cartoonish degree and uh while while that does make it somewhat entertaining the the, the film is entertaining i will give it that at least it's definitely a little gross at the same time it's a little you know it's, it's exaggerated to a point of no longer sympathizing I you know it's, it's harder to connect with the actual story of, of natalie wood throughout the film because it's so inflated
1: i mean this could just be a story of someone who fell off a boat and that's unfortunate um but it takes like an it's, exploitative it's angle like especially the parallels to like maryland and in the way that uh she's framed with her partners yeah. is is a little bit disturbing but uh i i ended up liking I, it I overall it in certain ways like I didn't think the structure could work, but the way it cuts from interviews into the yeah. material actually is compelling.
0: Yeah, it's surprisingly. You think that's going to be kind of a really another gross aspect of the story, of way of legitimizing the, the 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 fanciful nature of the the recreations and stuff, is by intercutting it with, you know, actual news coverage of her death and then the actual interviews, people giving testimonies to her life and what happened. You know, uh and, and you think that's going to be a really kind of messed up way of justifying how, how things are being depicted but it's actually pretty smooth in execution pretty surprising and, and effective in a way that is able to blend uh you know uh the, the the facts and the you know the fictionalizing together it's it does make it a little hard to tell what's real and what's not the, the book that the story is based on also does it, its own you know mythologizing of, of certain things and uh telling of certain stories uh, that have now become kind of ingrained into the Natalie Wood myth, Um, but for the most part it plays uh, pretty well. Uh, There is still stuff though that is uh, uncomfortable in terms of its framing, Uh, particularly I I remember being very off-put by the uh, alleged rape sequence, which is kind of, it feels very shoehorned in Uh, I know because of its placement in the book and, you know, its prominence within the the Natalie Wood, you know, mythology, it it, it seems like there was some importance to fit it in there, but the way it kind of comes into the story just comes in very abruptly and it's very graphic and it feels very exploitative and gross and and then it's kind of just gone. Like, it it doesn't have much significance from there on because uh, she, Natalie, apparently took pains to... Suppress it and, and not you know do anything about it. Not you know uh, kind of uh, out her her rapist. Um, yeah, and and even now, even as we have learned the supposed identity of the the rapist in the mm. wake of their death, um, it's it's still kind of like a, a questionable and, and an icky part. And you know, what does it add? I, yeah. Well, I I don't like the the conversation surrounding it and for people. People take it of for, for for solid fact when it's you know still largely speculation largely based off of a single testimony secondhand testimony um and I don't know its it, it does and it feels like another example of people using this horrific event to define Natalie's like like tragedy yeah and again like like completely overshadowing her, her life and achievement work. and work and I find that gross exploitation by the, the collective by the masses of people who you know, see this as a defining element of her legacy when it was really again almost, you know, by her own hand, you know, cut out of, of her life. Like she she worked hard to not talk mm. about it, supposedly. <laughs>
1: it is interesting because but, uh, it is a documentary in parts. It has those talking heads interviews, but it is also speculative documentary, which is usually like the domain of like a science fiction in a doc setting. It's usually um like these high-minded high concept ideas of of alternate realities and histories but this tries to play it straight which could lead down irresponsible paths and sometimes does because ultimately the non-talking head parts are entirely speculative fiction anyway
0: i i find it kind of interesting as a parallel with the film he made just shortly before this which was the theatrical the the cat's meow
1: yeah it's very close to that
0: in terms of oh it's and it's shot in a similar way it's made in a similar kind of like glamorizing you know old hollywood legend kind of deal but i i never get the impression that that one is exploited in the same way that this film is. you
1: say you say and glamorizing but for me they're both like his only critiques of hollywood like they're they're both the only ones that's like hollywood will kill its own if it has to well well
0: i mean it's glamorizing in the way that Hollywood's cynicism about itself is glamorizing in the kind of sunset mm-hmm. boulevard-y way oh yeah it's like, very yeah, self-concerned it's yeah of, it's 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 a critique of, of Hollywood but with, with a glamorous coating like look how look how glorious this tragedy of Hollywood is is it is so you know kind of like like you know operatic or, or whatever like the, again the the kind of masturbatory way that Hollywood likes to criticize itself you know yes it, it, it's and it, it's really doing so with a with a sheen of you know glossy paint on it mm-hmm.
2: uh,
0: and i say that as someone who loves sunset boulevard of course you know <laughs> so uh, i can yeah. i can get be- i can get behind this kind of mythologizing of hollywood and and it's you know depravity so to speak but uh in the case of the mystery of natalie wood it feels a lot more tasteless than in the case of uh the cast me yeah Which I feel like again, maybe it's because that one is more clearly just fictitious, uh, but Mm -hmm. also because the because they don't uh, because Ince's death, Thomas Ince's death, and that is not made the focal point of you know tragedy, so so to speak, or of of glamorous tragedy. And and I don't
1: know who Ince is, so like for me, like Natalie Wood is a name that I know and I've heard the story, not totally familiar, but. Enough that I know where this film's going right. and could follow it, and I, I didn't know it's just like the well, story said. and the the theories behind that, so I was willing to give that yeah more legroom.
0: And and the subject there, uh, you know, I guess it's different. maybe it's the woman because I because I think about other ones like you know like I think about other silent film legends that like the the myths surrounding. Farabuckle and Virginia Rappe, how that one is kind of like this gross exploitation, you know, and subjugation of that versus, you know, some of the other ones around the time or, or Valentino's death as well. There's this, again, this weird, you know, kind of like speculizing of these deaths that it isn't as much the case for the Cats meow for whatever reason. I think it's because the, you know, the angle is shifted from the person who was killed, the perpetrator the supposed blur in that case you know uh you know Hearst. but also probably just because it seems way more way more fictionalized way more sensationalized way more fantastical in the case of the cat's meow i don't know if bogdanovich believes that to be the real story still but i th- i think he basically believes everything he's chosen uh the uh, street of natalie wood which mm-hmm. again at times i feel like is over, overly wrong for the melodrama, played up way, way too much, and certain things played quite distastefully.
1: Yeah. Um, there's a, a lot of spectacle. Uh, it's still entertaining. I, I, it's no, still entertaining. I must mention uh, her mother's accent, which seems to be the impetus for uh, Lady Gaga and <laughs> Um Very satisfied with that. Uh, very overblown uh, accent.
0: I, I read a contemporary interview that praised... Her performance is like one of the most, you know, dramatic elements, (laughs) one of the most compelling of it. And I just, I didn't believe that because she's, she's so over the top. It's like, it's like some mommy dearest shit right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No wire hangers, basically.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Her mom, very irresponsible with her handling of her child, going into like child celebrity do, and just a lot of grossness there. Um, I, I did like it overall. I was, I mean, it's fine. I, I'm fine with having watched it. it again, it has, like, of... it has like it has like 1.5 million views on YouTube. It's one of those things where these seemingly forgotten films have been watched by an audience, as Bogdanovich said. We quoted.
0: I last just don't week. think they recognize. Yeah, I just don't think they are recognized as Bogdanovich films, and that's what we're bringing here. Like people see that as <laughs> yeah. like a telling of Natalie Wood's story. When I look when I looked at some of the interviews, people treated it more more like a documentary than like a fictional film, which is kind of like. Oh, okay. So, so that's what like pe- people who are really, really buying into the, the the Natalie Wood mythos there seem to to gravitate towards it, and I think that's a little dangerous in and of itself.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but as you're saying, I think the the, the double edged sword the thing that comes with being kind of like exploitative mm-hmm. and, and grimy a little bit like this is that sometimes it it works. Sometimes, like we we kind of like that trashy kind of like retelling. Sometimes that they you know that overly wrought melodrama is, is compelling and, and entertaining. This is certainly, I think, you know, more interesting, more, you know, better directed than a lot of his other TV works from, from the time period. It doesn't look like a TV movie necessarily. It sure no, looks good. Like I said, with, yeah, yeah, it looks good. It's shot well. There's some good camera work. Uh, performances are somewhat questionable, but there's some good ones. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, you, you've got, you got some people who are, who are doing really well. I liked, I like the guy playing Robert Wagner. He seemed to sell me. Yeah. On that, uh, Christopher Walken, less so. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was going to ask how you feel about the Christopher Walken here, very cartoonish.
0: I did, he didn't look anything like Walken. He didn't sound anything like Walken, and Walken so distinctive, so so yeah. singular in in how he is, and just like to, to not even try or like to half try something that's just totally incomprehensible, totally unimaginable as Walken, like
1: very two dimensional. Uh, performance there yeah i i don't buy into that but some of the other impressions of people there are good i don't buy them marilyn monroe either that much but uh, that's fine she
0: she sounds she sounds a lot like monroe but yeah she looks that's another like yeah uh th- it was all like australian actors i don't know if that has anything to do with it but it was made in australia and so most of the cast is comprised of australian performers so maybe maybe that's why there's there's not a convincing element to a lot of them but yeah i don't know there's some and, and there's always something at least like halfway entertaining about just kind of taking this trip through Hollywood history through the life yeah. of event actor, like, just just like the, like the little real, you know, you, you, you essentially get of going through all of the greatest hits, you know, yeah, you hit all the, the big moments where she was in Miracle on 34th Street, or she was on the searchers, you know, and stuff and, and you get those, you know, splendor in the grass uh you know so that's i don't know there's just like an inherent appeal to me as someone who who, who likes to go through these compilations, yeah who, who likes this order of, of history to see oh yeah they're there too and the 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 bits of recreation there's a reason we keep making films about old hollywood and, re- and seeing the sets you know these recreations and stuff there's there's just like this dumb inherent appeal to it i think that that kind of ticks our uh, checkbox in our brains or something be like i recognize that Mm -hmm. and you know it 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 works on that level i i I enjoy that and again i I like the novelty of the the documentary fusion there something i didn't expect to work but does and it's you know it's paced very well for a three-hour film it doesn't really (laughs) drag that much (laughs) it really is that's that's impressive in its own right
1: i feel like it also like kind of Gloves, I don't like our idea of gossip culture and our modern fixations on, like, TMZs, which uh, initially seemed just to be, like, the trashy gossip magazine, but, but their reporting is very accurate, if not ever ethical, um, and I think about that a lot, like, the early Hollywood was really, like, our, our start of these celebrity fixations in American life, and uh, they provided, like, a prison for us to get invested in a way we still are about um, socialites like the Kardashians and everyone. Uh, of today um and and it is comparable to like that that fixation on like these uh uh young entrepreneurs who are just like uh, what's going on there why is there there's so much drama and mystery around them um that's very satisfying to the state.
0: yeah yeah i think again there's an inherent appeal to that that is Questionable still, but also on beyond, on our behalf of our own. Like we're we are the people asking for this kind of thing. We're the people yes. doing it and enjoying it. And even as I sit here condemning the nature of the film, I'll, I'll say at the same time, it's still good though. It's still effective. <laughs> yeah. So you know, again, it's a it's a double edged sword like that. But uh, I'm I'm uncomfortable with the film, but I'm, I'm perhaps more uncomfortable with the fact that I enjoy. It. <laughs> <laughs> Me like, too. Damn, damn it. You you may have made you may have made some trashy exploitative you know uh c- you know shit here Bogdanovich but you did a good job of it and <laughs> well so, speaking so we'll of uh trashy
1: exploitative shit what do we have next
0: I thought I thought you were gonna say speaking of a good job but sure Tr- trashy exploitative shit uh, directed by John Ford
2: uh, course, that doesn't you, work
0: no no. <laughs> That's the transition you went with, though, so we got to roll with it. Directed by John Ford. <laughs>
1: you know it. Uh, print the trashy, exploitative shit, not the legend. That's <laughs> What I say.
0: I'm surprised you didn't call it "Print the Legend." Maybe that was too too hackneyed, obviously. Too know, Everything, everything since that you know has regarding John Ford has been regard you know named "Print the Legend." It's just too easy. It's too easy of a route to go. It's too easy of a thing to say. There's a nice there's a nice thing that Bogdanovich tackles in the documentary where he, where he talks about it. he says he asked Ford if he believes in printing the legend he mm-hmm. said, yeah you know heroes because heroes are good for the country or something yeah. like that
1: but then the documentary's and, conclusions are really interesting about whether or not he really does believe that or at least show it in his movies
0: and that's the the interesting enigmatic thing about ford i think ford you know persists as a director of interest in our minds not just because he made so many so many greats you know the definitive classics of, of American, you know, filmmaking, but also because his personality as a director, as his force of, of, of nature is just so compelling and and unknowable and, and interesting. Uh, it, it, you may have seen clips from this film before, if, you, if you've seen any interviews with Ford, because he didn't give a lot of interviews, but he did give one here for Bogdanovich in 69. And, uh, they're hilarious. They're hilarious interviews because he's just the the rudest, most uncooperative <laughs> person uh, imaginable in answering these questions. And it's a little sad to see at the same time, just like how obstinate he, he's being in the face of these very interesting questions that Bogdanovich <laughs> has had for him. Like he, Bogdanovich clearly has, has this great reverence and great understanding and research yeah. for his films. He, he's got a great understanding of, of films that most Ford aficionados probably haven't even necessarily heard of yeah and he's really interested in diving into that and asking Ford just refuses to give him any kind of you know insight whatsoever like it, it, it in a way that even I think David Lynch in interviews doesn't come close to imitating
1: I mean it is like a great inspiration for Lynch I think and his just you know um, nonchalant, just uh, denial of wanting to get into his works. Lynch will never explain anything either. He just he won't do those interviews, and they don't yeah. come up. Um, it, there's a,
0: you know, Head is my most spiritual film. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Would you explain that?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh,
1: <laughs> it's a uh, it's that classic line. Um, uh, how do you shoot that with a camera? That's that's the best yeah. part of the documentary, bar none. And I, it's like that, a,
0: that whole that whole bit because he because it continues on and and there's like a bit where he he asks him you know like how is his his westerns his view of the west has gotten more sad over the time and and is like uh i I haven't noticed i haven't noticed yeah it's like and and then bogdanovich says now that i've poured out to you do you have anything to say no no (laughs) it's it's
1: it's like he's directing the interview well uh, and i can feel the point 100 percent. I can feel uh, the pain of Bogdanovich when when uh, Ford says cut on his own interview.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's something that I know at the, at the time when it first happened. Bogdanovich felt very defeated by it. Been, I would, yeah, yeah. So, so, but uh, his his wife Polly Plant gave him the you know the idea and the inspiration and the motivation to turn it around and use it as a showcase of Ford, and this is how mm-hmm. it really is. And it ends up being one of the best parts of the documentary. Even Bogdanov himself later finding it quite humorous, quite funny. Yeah, it is. A, yeah, he he was a, a punching bag for Ford in that, but it's really demonstrative of how he was, how Ford was as a filmmaker, as a director, in his own perception, this facade of defiance of artistry and intent that he put up, you know, to continue the, to perpetuate this idea and this control he had over his, his work and his legacy. You know, um, it in, in a way, it adds to what we then are able to glean from his films, you know, and his intents, and you can read the, you know, his answers is essentially the inverse of, of what his, you know, intentions really were, and, and, and you get the sense, because there are points in the interviews later where he, he does actually open up, but he does give a bit more answers as to what, you know, he was doing, and, and what happened on a certain filmmaking, and, and why he made certain decisions, but I mean, that, that beginning could... intro is just
1: you could read it as cutting and terse, but at the same time, you could see it as uh, honoring Bogdanovich in a way that uh, Ford's allowing him to be himself and uh, show his process effectively of how he directs and controls his, uh, his cast and crew. There are a lot of commentary from people who have worked with Ford about how he controlled them and that and, uh, kind of led them in uh, sort of an abusive way, but uh, that old school director style, um, who I think like maybe Friedkin's one of the last advocates of... Oh.
0: Well, what's fascinating is that unlike other filmmakers who have abusive track records like Hitchcock or Fritz Lang, you know, in the same time period, the people who recount these stories of Ford and how awful he was to them, how terribly he treated them, how mean and vicious he was, is that they all tell them with total reverence. Like, they have this great fondness for the way that Ford treated them. They did. And, and, and it's this really, like, uh, you know, kind of like this anathema ideal of like, that someone who's so mean and so cruel, you know, uh, could garner such respect through through their actions like that by everybody, everybody who knew Ford loved him. Like I throw all of these testimonials, even outside of the ones you see in this documentary, I, I've never really heard someone say a bad thing about the way Ford treated him. Like, you know, there, there was like a falling out between him and Fonda at one point where they literally got into a fist fight on the set of one of their films. Um, but here is Fonda, you know, like, like 10, 15 years later, Still telling these, you know, fond stories of, of his time, you know, collaborating with Ford and working on set together and, and these, you know, uh, <laughs> really awful ways that they were being treated, but how that kind of commanded respect and brought something out of them and pushed them to be better. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you see it as well in the interviews, like the, the way that John Wayne recounts how he would be mean and belittle him until the very moment he needed. know that kind of compassion on set and he would treat him like a baby he said yeah in in these interviews here He, he knew exactly the way to deal with actors in a way that we would probably frown upon nowadays especially nowadays but that was almost essential for getting those kind of performances that make those four films so compelling and so enduring so striking and the documentary goes on and depicts all these aspects of Ford: his his visual artistry, his his painterly eye, you know, his the the reputation he maintained throughout with all of his colleagues, and and they're able to dissect and really dive into the personal ideals and motivations that you know kind of linger behind this armor that Ford put up. And a lot of that is only able to come through in the additional material that was added to the documentary in six. It's very obvious when you watch the film that what you're watching today is not what was made in 1971 because it opens on an interview of an elderly and, you know, scribe, Cliddice, who obviously was not like that in in 1971. He was making Dirty Harry in 1971.
1: There's a... One of my other favorite parts was, (laughs) I mean, the additions are so good. You look at like uh, Spielberg when he's saying uh, he went in to talk with them the first time. And um, Ford says like, uh, you have to look at like where the horizon meets the painting. Do you think it's at the top or the bottom? And he says, once you realize that the horizon can't be in the center then you're ready to become a director. And like that just, it's such a profound and strange piece of painting advice. For, for someone who like needs to understand like the visual frame and you realize that in all of his horizons like he worked in the western he could work outside and um, his films are America because they show the most of America and like the outdoors and and like the actual spaces that exist within the country so I think at Ford of course the most American iconoclastic director who defines like the country spaces and and textures and of course, like Monument Valley, like the the great monument of America. And, um, yeah, I a lot of it struck a chord with me because I really enjoyed the style where it's like a, not so much getting into like personal business. There's no gossip at all. It's very uh, tourist, uh, almost Fordian, and, and that is focused entirely on his direction style. I enjoy that. And I, I think more documentaries about directors should just look at the work. Like uh, I think of like Dave Palma, the... Uh, The one he did, um, yeah, I mean, there's something to it. Just look at the work and look at the direction style. You don't need to tell a whole biography.
0: I, I think one of the most compelling things about it to me is how Bogdanovich was able to go back in and add so much to flesh out and incorporate all of these contemporary interviews, these new interviews with the likes of Scorsese and such, you know, and, yeah. and Spielberg and Walter Hill, in, in, into the the same discussions that were being had 1969 and 1970 with John Wayne and Henry Fonda and James Stewart. Particularly, it's, it's, it's super effective when Scorsese opens the topic of a scene, a striking scene in the film Two Road Together, and then it then seamlessly picks up with james stewart talking about that same exact scene and i feel and it just i think it really is a testimony to how impactful the whole of ford's work was and how enduring it is that you know uh, 30 years later we can you can be having the same discussion you know just of, of their own volition effectively and you know it, it, it just blends into so fully uh, yeah and, and having those particular having the likes of Berg and Scorsese, who were so influenced, who were so indebted to Ward's mm. direction, it really gives a great, you know, uh testimony as well to his work. And you see how that influence survives and, if, you know, uh persists. Uh,
1: it's it's so great, too. Later down. Like, all the people that are being interviewed in 2006 are the people who were like on the rise of their career as this documentary was coming out so it's like a continuing conversation of like where development was then, and then all these people who were big back then, how are they now and how do they view that work that really got them into their career at the point this documentary is made.
0: It would be interesting to see it, you know, it obviously it won't happen, but it would be interesting to see if someone picked up the documentary in another 30 years. And like you said, like added on to it, you know, a whole new generation of filmmakers weighing in and continuing to the discussion of Ford's impact and legacy over time. Because you can see how it, you know, continues and perpetuates and will last forever. You know, it really, yeah. he really was the definitive American filmmaker of his time and all time, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and the documentary does such a good job of conveying that and showcasing his his work and his visual artistry and the depth the thematic depth that all of his works possessed the different through lines and you know uh, interests and ideals that Ford carried and it's just a really terrific exploration of that and to see it then be updated you know and and improved upon even with you know contemporary insights and such is i think magnificent and Particularly, one of the most striking aspects is that is very late in the documentary. You get a, a discovered sound clip of Ford and Catherine Hepburn having a conversation. Oh yeah, without their knowledge, and and it's amazing because it's like for the first time on any recorded me- medium, you get to hear Ford without the facade. Yeah, you hear him say he loves Catherine Hepburn, which is just like this kind of unbelievable statement, you know, from someone who's so hardened and, and grizzled and and so fixated on this image that he's presenting to the world. And, and that's a terrific moment that really encapsulates, you know, and, and you can see the, the real Ford that you've been kind of studying and chipping away at for all of the document up until then.
1: It talks occasionally about like his troubled family life, but I'm glad it doesn't get too far into the weeds on personal issues. But it also shows that um, whatever he is missing at home, he is be able to become like the the father of everyone in the documentary, like the father of American cinema. Um he had a parental role in another way, which is very guiding for um, an eternity of filmmakers, honestly.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and again, I think it really, you know is able to encapsulate and find the the truth and the appeal of Ford as this kind of abrasive personality why we're able to enjoy someone who's as mean-spirited as him uh, and and not feel that his actions are, you know, something that should be overtly condemned. Again, something that probably wouldn't be kosher today, uh, but that seems to have been functional in its time. And again, you know, because there are all these people who attest to, you know, the effectiveness and, you know, the endearing quality of his means of his callous nature that there's something that was appropriate about it and and you get that sense not only through the you know the interviews that people give but even through Ford's own presence again there's there's just something very endearing about that sarcastic dismissive nature that you might actually in in real life if you talked with him would find pretty fucking irritating
1: yeah I mean uh, maybe yeah I wonder if he would be that way in a normal conversation I, I assume it would just be a action or I mean, necessity he, of its direction.
0: He seems to be, but again, it seems like he was still, you know, uh, enjoyed the presence of these, these people enough, despite how much he feigned irritation. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he would, I, and again, and that passed on to them, like Bogdanovich clearly loved Ford. Yeah. Um. D- despite how awfully he was he was treated at times. And he saw, but, but he saw that being picked on that, you know, that, you know, targeting of him. As, as an aspect of approval, as, as a sign, right, exactly, and you know, and that was kind of Ford's way, and, and and you come to understand it watching the documentary, you know, and so those those legends, that mythos of Ford becomes humanized and understandable through all of these perspectives, and and that I think is a, is, a, is the marker of a really great documentary is that we're yeah. able to profile this person in full.
1: Uh, what do we have next?
0: The the next is again a, a kind of unexpected um, departure for uh, um, Bogdanovich. I, uh, still, like, right around the same time period, he was contacted to make a, a music documentary. They asked uh, uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers asked if he wanted to, you know, cover them. You know, do do a, a retrospective of their thirty year career. And when he went to go meet Tom Petty, uh, he'd never heard of him before. <laughs> Which, which is kind of crazy in 2006 to have never heard of Tom Petty and the Heartbreak. Seems
1: unlikely, yeah. You
0: know, these guys were still making classic songs, you know, Free Falling and, and Mary Jane's Last Dance in the in the 90s. Which yeah. Which is really when rock and roll was kind of that dying. He was all but dead at, at that point, I would say. Rock and, and roll. Uh, and they're still living on and, and making hit records and rock and roll records that like they're not you know they hadn't changed and so <laughs> it, it makes sense when you consider the kind of person Bogdanovich was he was you know he's more of a Sinatra guy you know he, he'd listened to Bruce Springsteen you know and he liked the Beatles but aside from that he he, he was pretty ignorant I would say of, of the rock and roll scene so but but Tom Petty was, you know, he was a fan of movies, big fan of Westerns in particular, and I just think they had an admiration for Bogdanovich still from Last Picture Show, as everyone did, and and so they wanted to to get him, you know, to to make it, and Bogdanovich signed on after he met with Petty for the first time, you know, they got along really well, and he felt like the, the way it needed to be made was that Tom needed to tell the whole story of the band, you know, he needed to sit down and be the one to articulate it and interview, and that's, a hundred percent it was a hundred percent the right decision and it's exactly what they did
1: your idea that rock and roll died in the 90s is your uh strangest take that you've ever given you think so
0: yeah you, you think
2: so
1: <laughs> i i mean i'd call it like the pinnacle of, of rock and roll like the the growth the uh the climax of rock and roll uh, not the death I, well
0: what what do, you, what do you think the climax I, okay well, i guess we're gonna go on a tangent here because i yeah. think it's i think it's the, i think I think rock and roll was on its, its its way out and the new, you know, new genres of music cropped up and changed and overtook. You know, you had your, your grunge and rap and pop music was coming along and taking over the scene from, from rock and roll. I, I consider a, a grunge. Act.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I consider grunge to be like the combination of all of these genres that came before, like um, taking from the 70s and the rhythm and blues and all the styles of rock and roll. And then uh, filtering that through a, a a location-based style.
0: Sure, but it's a it's a successor. It's distinctive in its own way. I wouldn't consider it rock and roll. Again, you know, in the same way that I wouldn't consider rock and roll, um, you know, con- country or blues, you know it's it's its own separate thing and, and I, think I disagree it an yeah. that, but it was it was it was different i think it was entirely different um it's it's played on so, classic
1: rock channels now it's all in the same category it's sure but they yeah. made
0: rock such a large umbrella of a term i think if you want to talk about what like rock and roll is at its heart i think it was you know kind of in on its last legs in the 90s And now we have, you know, we have Alternative now, which is its own different thing. Again, if you want to throw, it's too big of an umbrella. I think we can't call everything that came since the 70s and 80s rock and roll, you know, or or even the 60s, you know. I I think it went from the, you know, it, it was birthed in the 50s. And it started to evolve into something new and distinctive in the '60s. It fought, it it, it it prospered in the '70s and '80s, and then it started to die off in the '90s. And by the end of uh, there, we were, you know, in a totally different mode of music making.
1: It's still not dead, by the way. It's still, um I mean, who
0: who who who's the preeminent rocker right now? Who who the, who, who are the new generation of rockers?
1: It's been Foo Fighters for 25 years, still.
2: So. <laughs>
0: they're yeah but they're not really again they're they're like an alternative uh rock band they're not the same, yeah I, I don't
1: believe in the alternative label i guess i guess is our is i i never bought well, into that i think it's a marketing label for rock and roll uh, i
0: think i think it's distinctive but i again it's the closest thing that rock has to to a successor and, and even then, then then i would still argue that rock and roll was gone in the 90s because if no. the Foo Fighters if the Foo Fighters are the flagship band and they that's where they began you know and you know they're, they're, they're if that's the last of it then yeah it's been gone for you know going on 30 years now
1: there's still rock coming out we still got our mastodons our heavy rock or uh
2: there's, I, yeah
1: there's plenty of albums not like there were but uh
2: well, that's
0: why I'm saying it's it's dead dead. it's dead in the sense that it's now no longer you know prospering. it's you know it it, it reached its end, you know, yeah, I mean every it genre lives on, it lives on in spirit, yeah, like yeah. no no genre of music is ever like completely well, dead of course. every
1: genre but hip hop is reduced since the nineties so um yeah. literally everything but pop and hip hop have shrunk, so well, I mean that's... there's two genres now that have exceeded where they were.
0: That's and, and and again, that's I guess more so what I mean.
1: Yeah, um, uh, yeah, but, new popular but, but forms of music.
0: Well, and 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 what I meant as well when I said that they were thriving, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were still thriving, is that a lot of the the preeminent acts of the seventies and eighties had lost their flavor, had lost their edge, had lost their their sheen, their brilliance by the time of the nineties, and that's where everyone else was taking over. But Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were still making classic definitive songs you know right. you know thir- 20 years late into their career where everyone else was kind of floundering i guess and what i like
1: about tom petty and i kind of like classify him and neil young as the like pregenitors of like the grunge era like those are the guys those guys look up to like eddie Vedder is a huge like tom petty and neil young guy and like those are the guys yeah. who lead to pearl jam and all that
0: and you get and you get testimonies from eddie vetter you do you get to see uh yeah here uh, i think he's like the first one interviewed too yeah 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 i think he is you get dave Grohl as well and you see the footage of them like him being a placement drummer for the uh, saturday night live which is really great just like young, young dave Grohl, just <laughs> going fucking nuts on the drums to honey as they say dave, about dave, drummers dave, yeah, like they they
1: exist right after, in like 10 bands at a time like Drummers just belong to every band that tours.
0: But yeah, so the... It was an unexpected move, I think, from Bogdanovich, but maybe the the most inspired (laughs) he made in his career. It's it's unexpected, but he understood instinctually Mm -hmm. what the story of the Heartbreakers needed, how it needed to be told, and how to... Tell it so thoroughly and uncompromisingly as to make it what I'm call the definitive rock uh, documentary, the, the definitive legacy, the story of an an entire band's history, without missing anything. It it, it leaves nothing on the table. It's a huge film. It's, it's almost four and a half hours, and that which is far longer than anything Bogdanovich ever made before. And you couldn't cut a second of
1: it. I love that. I love the way he introduces Tom Petty to He's so charming. He's like, a, yeah, my dad thought he'd do one nice thing for me. So he got me the guitar. And, and I'd watch these country westerns where the boys played the guitar in it. And I thought that was a good thing to do. So that's why I'm a guitarist. It's, it's just such a charming, uh, sweet, uh, antique origin story that you know you don't hear so much now.
0: And and Tom Petty is so natural on screen. He's he's such a natural talker, natural storyteller, uh, natural personality. He's so compelling as, as a central figure, and it and it makes complete sense as to why he's led this band for thirty years, why he's been the central force in in the rock and roll scene, and why he's able to make such an impact, you know, on everyone, and why everyone just absolutely loves him. I I, I love seeing stevie Nicks talk about wanting to drop everything and join the heartbreakers <laughs> <Street> <laughs> i, I des- yeah i i desperately wanted that because especially when you listen to the the two collaborations she did with them mm-hmm. they're just they're such good songs they're and and their vocals really pair beautifully together in these amazing harmonies and it, you know you think about all of the people like, like I don't know, there's something really compelling to me about seeing these these legendary artists working together in different capacities throughout. So when you see things like the Heartbreakers being the touring band for Bob Dylan at one point, or working with Johnny Cash, you know, in recording sessions at some point, it's just like this incredible, incredible collision of, uh, you know, unrivaled artists, you know, coming together to make the best music possible. So then you have this all build up to this amazing revelation that I'm sure many people don't know about, which is... The traveling wolveries
1: people don't know about them
0: uh, i would not be surprised. i didn't before i watched this documentary okay. a years ago i was not aware of them great thing so... to find out <laughs> well i mean think about it i mean bogdanovich didn't even know who tom petty was you think you knew about the traveling wolveries
2: <laughs> yeah
0: i don't... i i think it's because they they existed for for a short period of time, you know, they, yeah. they were only a, a super group for so long before Borgeson's death. And uh, I don't think they get as much play on the radio, certainly nowadays. Um, you know, they've got a couple of songs that you might hear on occasion, but obviously the legacy of everyone else in that band as an individual persists greater than, you know, their their collective works as a, as a unit there. But I mean,
1: like, perhaps even like, more now than they did when they came out traveling Wilburys or Mar uh maybe prominent classic rock than they were on contemporary rock when it happened
0: yeah uh, i think and again that's going to happen when you have you know new new generations reviving the you know and, and searching through and bringing forth uh under under appreciated works you know from older uh you know musicians and such so but but i think the the legacy of that the way the documentary integrates the story of the Traveling Willberries into the Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker story is just kind of very magnificent. And it's this great chronicle as well, of seeing all of these legends in one place working together to make, you know, <laughs> like just this great harmonious music that possesses all of their distinctive sounds. And they're all very distinctive artists. You wouldn't necessarily expect them to, Come together, you know. I think they have these very distinct. So you've got like the embodiment of folk rock with Bob Dylan here. You got next Beetle and George Harrison. You have got you know, uh, you know Tom Petty, who's this more you know country blues rock artist. There, there are all these very disparate styles that mesh together in a beautiful way, and they all get a chance in the spotlight. And, and I think it's really wonderful, and, and and that's one of the many many highlights of the film, which again is just this. Exhaustive chronicle of everything and recalled recall in such detail by every member of the band and complemented by, you know, different, you know, articles or, or, or visual representations of their time and, and lots of lots of great archival footage. Mm-hmm. And well, one of the other things that I really, really appreciate is that every song is played out in full. They never cut anything, the documentary is that it is. Everything. It's everything in its fullest, and it, it, to me, it felt like when you when you want a film, when you see a film, you're like, "Oh, I think about what they left on the cutting room floor. I'd like to see the longer version of this movie. This is the longer version of of any movie of, of this movie, whatever it was going to be. This is the version that you'll have always wanted to see. This is in your mind what you pictured to be the complete, full version where nothing was left on the table, and it's. Fantastic. It's mesmerizing.
1: Yeah, I think the only thing is that you're a much bigger um, Tom Petty fan than I am. I appreciate him. I respect music. I don't actively. I mean, I think the
0: documentary. I I think the documentary really turned me into a Tom Petty fan more than anything. Okay. I was, you know, I I was, when I first saw it, you know, uh, it was not too long after he had died. And it, it made me intensely, intensely regretful that I never saw him live. is one of those, like, you know, lost ones you, you, you really miss out on. You feel like you should have chased after that I didn't fully appreciate until I, I kind of took the time to go back through everything. um, Kind of as we're doing now with Bogdanovich, really. Yeah. But the, you would not expect, I think, something to be so compelling. And again, to really display and and showcase the greatness of an artist like this does in in such a complete capacity tom petty might not be the example you would think to go to to be the embodiment of you know all of the rock and roll and you know the the ambassador for it so to speak but this makes a a a great argument for how he is that how, how the band is that and how enduring they are and how iconic they've managed to be and i just think it's the everything i would want a rock and
1: roll documentary to be i mean it is everything too. it's it's all the fixings are in here
0: yeah
1: yeah i respect that that it's the whole course um i mean i like a i like a rock documentary that's just a a phase or a time um yeah
0: like yeah I, but there's certainly an uh, argument again. This is, this should not be the de facto, you know, approach to documentary. Again, like yeah. w- whenever you have such great ambitions, it's very easy to get caught in in that <laughs> oversized ideas and and just get really bloated. But I don't want other people to make this right. I don't want other people to take this approach. This is this is what happens when when such great ambition is realized in its fullest and and i think that's why people continue to try and make comprehensive exhaustive extensive overviews of an entire lifespan of entire bodies of work is because when it's as great as something like this is it is just the best it's the tops it feels like you can't even come close you know to rivaling it when when that's the case um but but certainly there is value in and of itself of just finding the embodying period of an artist and focusing on that. It just yes. so happens that that Bogdanovich managed to capture it like like realize and then capture the entire breadth of the Heartbreakers' career in a compelling and unrelenting manner. Is it is it your favorite
1: rare. music, Doc? I think mine must be Pearl Jam 20 from uh, uh Camera Crow and then I have the um I have a. Uh, the Last Waltz, pretty great from Scorsese. Those might be my top two. Mm-hmm. This is up there.
0: I I think this this is this is it for me. I think uh, okay. I, I remember the first time I watched it. I I it made me want to get up and get involved in music again. It it really put into me that that fire for love of music again. It it ignited that in a way that was just undeniable. You know, and it's not that I didn't love music before, but it, but it really got me going like that. And watching again, finally finding the time to do it a second time, is that same feeling. You know, last last year we had the incredible Get Back documentary from Peter Jackson, which gave me very similar sensations of of wanting to you know just commit myself completely to mm-hmm. to music again and find you know and that that same energy and enthusiasm that these artists have. But um. I don't know, this this one. I think is just kind of this like This this full realization. I'm I'm awestruck still by how completely it manages to capture everything about the band and its history, their dedicated music, and the the highs and lows and the, just the complete package. relates. Really. It's it's. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it other than that. It really is just the most comprehensive thing.
1: Well, however you feel about music is how I feel about podcasting. Um, should, we, should we do our last part, uh, Buster Keaton?
0: Yeah, the last documentary, the last film that Bogdanovich made was The Great Buster, A Celebration, is, is what it's called. And it's a, uh, it's a it's a little humble documentary instead, of, but, but a fitting one, I think, for him to go out on, this um, capturing this, this portrait of a... a Definitive silent film star, and again another kind of homage and record of Bogdanovich looking to capture the essence of Hollywood greatness.
1: Yeah, uh, what uh, would it go out with the tribute to someone who's clearly so reflected in his work too?
0: Yeah, especially again, there's direct parallels to things like What's Up, Doc, and all of the different pratfalls, and specifically the silent film, you know, comedy style in Nickelodeon. And, you know, all of the physical comedy you get in Noises Off and such, it's its all indebted to to Keaton in particular, but also the likes of Lloyd and Chaplin, but Keaton especially. And, and you get that almost actual, like, very literally direct homages in something like What's Up Doc, like the big car chase at the end where they jump into the river, that reminds me a lot of Sherlock Jr. in particular. Um, and and all the different, like, like leaps and jumps, things all the crashing and all that. That's very Keaton-esque. And... It's it's such a good recreation of it that I, I can't think of another example except for maybe like a like a Jackie Chan who does you know comparable stunt work you know and in, in direct homage to Keaton. Um, this was done as a kind of showcase for uh, Cohen Media, who had just uh, gotten all the rights for uh, all the, the Buster Keaton films for North American distribution, as they wanted Bogdanovich to make a showcase for it effectively, you know, something to complement all of the new films, you know, all the films they were about to release. Um and it, it's pretty good. It does a good job of, I think, showcasing Keaton's work, going over his life, you know, teaching people about his experiences and his works, uh, who may not be familiar with him otherwise. Uh and particularly in covering everything, like like including the sound period and all of his commercials, works and all these Kind of more obscure areas that you wouldn't think to chronicle. Otherwise, you know, people you know fixate so much on his work as a silent comedian, and and he he did survive beyond that, and he and he prospered in his own way, uh, not quite as others did, but he did continue working and making films, and you know, trying to craft his artistry and and, and do his work, and to to a semi-successful degree that deserves chronicling still.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And. Uh... He chose another interesting structure doing uh, um, some of his early work. And then uh, i kind of taking a break for some of the life stuff. Uh, not like the fourth thing. He really gets into the, the life of Keaton here in the middle of it. Uh, he talks about Keaton not having a middle to his movies, but uh, awkwardly kind of does the same thing here it's, until he comes back and does his 20 films by then.
0: It's a, it's a bizarre choice. Um, Certainly uh, what one I understand his motivation for, he wanted to go out on a high note for it to be an actual celebration of the great works of his career, but it, it breaks it up narratively and the pacing becomes very bizarre because you, you, you he has to like put a pause on the story to take the kind of significant developments, put them at the end and just kind of like so skipping over that whole chapter of, of major feature successes, and going straight from his shorts to the sound period where he had this big decline and his life basically went to shambles before kind of stumbling back up a bit you know before his the, the end of his life. Um, I, I don't think it's ultimately a successful decision, I, I think he I, again I see the intent of it, but it, it does kind of make things very odd and bizarre and the other thing that kind of makes things odd in his choices is that he, he leans a lot on his own authority mm. as a kind of film historian, uh, particularly in in that he narrates over the whole thing, he kind of proselytizes his own opinions about it, really props up certain films that I think are uh, questionable, and he, and he kind of dismisses other ones that are really great. You know, it's, it's a very subjective perspective of Keaton's work, which uh, I, I think is a, is a poor approach as a documentarian. And uh, I, I found it particularly funny in the way he opens the film on an interview of himself talking about Keaton on the Dick Caffett show. And I think that kind of sets the tone
2: Weird for choice.
0: Bog Bogdanovich-centric that the film is going to be, you know, where, whereas in something like the Tom Petty documentary, he he understood that he needed Petty to tell the story for, for the band to speak for themselves. You know, he decided to speak on, on behalf of Keaton here. Um, I... I don't know if uh, again largely i think he probably felt he was able he was capable of of doing it and he is you know he he's knowledgeable on on keaton and has mm-hmm. you know the 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 awareness and the history but uh i i think he focuses too much on his own opinions of the work he's not objective enough in you know translating over and so sometimes the quality of the films the subjective quality can contradict his own statements on on the film and uh, I think he whitewashes some of the films a little bit. He's, he's careful to showcase the all of the good things about Keaton, and none of the questionable things. Um, none of them, really, uh, yeah. Not, not, none of the multiple, multiple instances of blackface that Keaton used in his films are are shown here. Um, Which, which is funny, in one particular one, in, in, in the scene he showcases for college.
2: Right. Uh, because it's he showcases a
0: scene that literally precedes a whole whole skit in blackface uh, that kind of you know echoes the scene he just shows, which is gross. <laughs> I, th- I think I think it's a little bit of uh, you know kind of like like erasing out the bad parts of of, of Keaton there. Uh, and it's not to say that you needed to showcase you know the the blackface instances you know to get the full picture of Keaton, but I think there's there's a little bit of a disingenuousness in in how some of it is communicated.
1: I guess uh, what I like so much is I haven't seen so many of uh, Keaton's as you ever, maybe most, uh, uh, silent film advocates have done. Uh, so for me, a lot of first experiences here, uh, seeing the works, and they're so impressive. The set pieces are so large. They're so innovative. Um, I mean, Keaton's so interesting. His approach also matches like the style of comedy. I like, I, I like his dead badness, even though it's overplayed sometimes in the media clearly. Um, Really enjoy like who he is as a performer, and uh, gives me a lot of impetus to go through and uh, explore some of that work. I, I have a lot of notes now of of what to see.
0: It's it's a really great introduction for a lot of people who don't know Keaton, and it's a good like clip show, I guess, of his his best moments. You know that he uh, do, uh, uh, Bogdanovich does hone in on the the highlights of his career, not just the iconic moments of steamboat bill or the general or sherlock jr but also you know the, the seen films you know, the big set piece at the end of seven chances is a, is a really great one that they opened the documentary with uh and, and some of the shorts period as well although i think it could have used a bit more highlighting there because his silent shorts are perhaps even better than a lot of his feature works personally uh, thinking it and you know so kind of truncating that and to really hide this the, the feature period i think is a little bit of a disservice to his legacy. But it does really does introduce and it shows these sequences, you know, in in the lengthy portions and really gives you a taste of just how great and innovative Keaton was as a filmmaker. Uh, And again, even showcasing that within the period that's less celebrated from you still see that Keaton innovation and inventiveness and creativity in his sound periods and the commercial works he did and, and the entertaining quality that he was able to produce, even in a very restrained system, where he was no longer, you know, the, the arbiter, so to speak, uh, of his, uh, you know, his, his work, his artistry.
1: Definitely really a case where I'm glad that I, I got a lot from it because I hadn't seen those, but I, had I seen them, um not quite sure what Bogdanovich brought that I would have got that I wouldn't have gotten from watching those films anyway.
0: There, again, I think there's the perspective of the areas era, that aren't talked about that's very valuable. and mm-hmm. I, I think there's something to be said for the talking heads in which he tries to uh, communicate the influence of various, you know, some of them more than others.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There there's one in particular that stuck out in my mind that I told you about before the movie, which was John Watts, uh, John, John Watts is director of the recent Marvel Spider-Man movies. And he draws a like he, he communicates Keaton as an influence on the expressive quality of spider-man behind the mask and they, they use to show and it feels just like the most cynical shit. it doesn't feel legit at all it feels like you're trying to market buster keaton to a generation of marvel movie addicts and that's and it's the, just like this single moment
1: on the other hand we get johnny knoxville which i appreciate as a genuine uh, continuation of his work so
0: yeah, yeah, and you know, the, and they highlight even like the direct homages that Knoxville came yeah. <laughs> to do in, in Jackass two, I think it was. Yeah. Um and and what I love about that, that particular one where they have again the, the Steamboat Bill homage is that it shows you just how professional and incredible Keaton was, because even as someone is dedicated to risking their life and doing the most stupid ass shit as Knoxville is, he he's still you know, like uh, quakes kind of in, in, you know, in the face of this giant facade falling around him. And he's not able to pull off the stunt as as Keaton had on a much grander scale, you know, in, in 1926. Uh, and so it shows you just how unrivaled he was that even people who are willing to, you know, try and be even more death defying than, than he is in, in many ways.
1: Although like for Knoxville, I want to note that uh, if you fuck up the stunt, it's a lot funnier. So.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's great that they they fucked that up in, in Jackass <laughs> too. It's, it's a funny moment and, and nice that they highlight it. Uh, I think here, even though it's not overtly related to to Keaton, the the, the fuck up anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but it's it's a nice moment and again a good demonstration of the, the the differences, but also how the the legacy of Keaton survives. You know, today. Um, it, it, as a documentary, it's it's not the best. Certainly not the best from Bogdanovich. It's it's a little, you know, uh unintuitive in in certain ways. It's a little, you know, kind of very basic uh, overview of certain aspects. Unlike the Ford documentary, it doesn't really dive into any kind of like personal motivation specifically. It doesn't glean anything specific, but it's also harder to so many years removed from that legacy when you're not discussing with people who had a a direct lineage, direct connection to to Keaton there. Of course,
2: yeah
0: it really is more so like a contemporary evaluation of his work and his influence today. And in that regard, it's, it's, you know, pretty successful. It's still, it's highly opinionated, I think, but uh, it's a good showcase, a good introduction for anyone Who's just getting into Keaton's work, which I think is exactly what Cohen Media was looking for when they asked, asked Bogdanovich to make it. You know, they wanted something to complement all these new restorations they had to release, and I, I think it goes well with it.
1: Like I said, uh, perhaps like me needing that introduction to some of his other works beyond the the sixth I've seen uh, was my necessity for the project. So for me, it's success, but uh, I'll never watch it again once I watch those other movies.
0: Yeah, I, again, I think if that's, and that's the aim of the film ultimately is to spread awareness of Keaton and his legacy and, and some of the films that are less recognizable, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, or to give you context for the ones that are. And if it did that for you, certainly as someone who's not seen many Keaton films, uh, then yeah, it's, it's a resounding success. It's unquestionable in its success. Um, I guess just when you understand better, it becomes apparent how surface level it is i could
1: see that already uh, yeah i mean there's nothing you know no takeaways except what was in the films for me especially
0: it's it's a showcase and i i said i think it it feels more like a a video essay than a document sometimes um but but that's not necessarily a bad thing it's still successful in its ambition it's just not as ambitious as uh it could be for you know a keaton documentary you know it feels like it it feels more like a supplement on on a dvd than uh you know its own separate thing i suppose
2: mm-hmm.
1: i'd agree with that uh well should we evaluate all these documentaries based on their yeah um i think effectiveness
0: i think i think it's time to solidify this this is the the final you know rundown of all these films let's hear it
1: all right um where, where do we want to start with
0: uh, do you want to run down the list again? Of, of course. Or do we just, okay, yeah. yeah, let's go with that.
1: What's up, Doc, Paper Moon, Mask, They All Laugh, Noises Off, To Sir With Love too. St. Jack, The Last Picture Show, At Long Last Love, Nickelodeon, The St. Switch, She's Funny That Way, Daisy Miller, Targets, The Cat's Meow, The Thing Called Love, Texasville, uh, Illegal Yours, Naked City, Blessed Assurance, Hustle, Rescuers. What a list.
0: right let's go for more so let's start with our first one we talked about today the mystery of natalie wood
1: Hmm. okay um i i mean i have ideas i i'm sure you have ideas
0: uh yeah hmm. uh let's 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 start by saying this uh is it better than all the bottom tier tv movies
1: so better than naked city blessed assurance hustle and rescuers yes
0: yeah okay good we'll start there is it better than the the next lower tv movie you simply switch uh
1: no yeah,
2: no it's I don't, not i
0: don't think so either yeah um i personally i think it's actually just above all the other tv movies oh, because okay. the the, ex, the exploitative nature of it is, is still very gross to me and and i feel like there's a lot of scenes in it that are that are really unethical and uncomfortable The acting is often (laughs) cartoony, and it doesn't give me anything greater than, um, you know, a a lot of, even like Cat's Meow, which I feel like does the the glamorized Hollywood mythos thing better than than this does. But it's still entertaining. It's still uh, compelling and valuable. I I think about it in the same way I think about Illegally Yours, but I think the difference there is that Illegally Yours was compromised by external factors, whereas Natalie Wood feels compromised by inter like by by scripting issues and direction you know uh it you know uh so I I, I felt I feel like I'm very lenient on Illegal Yours* and I have been since we watched it but I do feel like a kind of affection for it still even though it's mediocre but that's that's around where I'm hovering right now above mm-hmm. all those you know kind of mediocre tv movies but not quite as distinctive as Illegally Yours. Like, Illegally Yours, to me, feels like a Bogdanovich film in a way that even some of the other, you know, better made films don't. I
1: was only going to argue for it a place up above that. I was only going to put it between Texasville and Illegally Yours. Um, so I could go with that. I could go with it between Illegally so Yours and
0: you, Nick City. Do you think it's better than Illegally Yours? Yeah, I like, Which uh, would you watch again?
1: I would that, never do, watch, do you watch Natalie Wood
0: Natalie again. Watch? <laughs> I'll be honest, I'm not going to watch but would either you watch of them Illegally again.
1: I won't watch either of them again. Okay, I that's guess. fair. Okay. <laughs>
0: that's fair. I I I might I, again if I was to do another bugnostic retrospective, I might include Illegally Yours. I probably would not include Natalie Wood.
1: I would never watch Natalie Wood again. Um if I were watching all the Rob Lowe movies, maybe I'd I'd get to Illegally Yours. No, I, I don't think I would.
2: Uh, I've
0: I, I i might like, let's say this like if i was curating a bogdanovich retrospective to show in a, in a theater i might consider including illegally yours as a kind of un, unknown one you know a lesser known work that that highlights something about bogdanovich's career uh even if it's bad you know yeah it's it, it, it feels like if it, it's more integral to the bogdanovich narrative than like natalie wood does
1: though so if someone were to go go watch something and just wanted like a, a relaxing Film that made sense in a TV format, not quite a cinema one. I think uh, I don't know. I could see watching Natalie Wood. I I like Natalie Wood. I uh, I like the I like the blended documentary and fiction more than I should. Okay, all
0: right, all right. I will. I'll give it to you then, because it's not really worth fighting for. For this <laughs> place, but... illegally yours. This integrity. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bad movie that I feel like personal sentiment towards because it has you know more of Bogdanovich's stamp on it, and I feel like it was compromised by external factors I, I see a better movie in there uh that i want to champion but it's it's obviously not that and N- natalie wood is well made if kind of like overblown and if
1: problematic unnoticed. yeah
0: yeah but it's 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 well made so i'll give you that so below texasville above illegally yours
1: i guess because it surprised me too i did i expected really not to yeah. like it i expected it to be like in the blessed assurance camp of okay this is a bad movie now but uh it's not it's it's actually a five out of ten movie
0: it's it's pretty good again it's it's very watchable it's yes, compelling for yes. three hours which is a feat that's always impressive if a film can be three hours and still you know you know watchable all the way through so god but
1: is that worse than illegally yours is it worse to just for it to be like functional as a movie is that maybe are we doing a worse thing here because you're right that illegally yours know. has things in it that are like likable like they're, they're good things yeah. Are, are we doing the wrong thing? Are we sacrificing the wrong movie? Maybe, maybe I
0: don't know. I like I said. I want I want to champion *Illegally Yours*. I think we I think we, to I think we need to. I,
1: there. I'm having guilt. I'm having list making guilt. Um, I feel like we've placed Natalie Wood too high. Actually, uh, maybe a little bit too high. Maybe it's under *Naked City*. It's,
2: oh, maybe I
1: think it's, it's so mediocre so. that it, I mean natalie wood's like a five out of ten it's like that's the worst thing for a movie could be Uh, on a list
2: maybe
0: maybe. i mean i guess it should be it's i should point out that you do have legally yours rated lower than natalie wood i know i do (laughs) but but i'm
1: also saying that like this middle of the road like basic tv approach is less valuable to me than a bad bogdanovich
0: movie uh, you're you're making me defend Natalie Wood now because I don't think it's basic TV approach. I think the other uh, we argued is that it doesn't it doesn't look like a TV movie. I guess I it's, mean like the recreation very, style,
1: like it. between documentary and recreation, it looks like everything on like Netflix now. Um, but the, the well, filmmaking is better in, than that. Not
0: in 2000, yeah, not, not in 2004 or or, or whenever. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was certainly more notable then. And again, the the fusion of documentary and fiction there is surprisingly effective it shouldn't work and it, it does
1: you're right should we move it above targets
0: no no i think uh. targets i think targets is better i think targets is a successful movie with boring components but i think the strong components of targets still again i, I think maybe if anything we've undersold targets but I, I still agree that it's it's lower than its its reputation l- largely is i think it's still over over championed a bit because the dull parts of Targets are so dull, and it's drawn out. It, it feels like they really, really tried to fill out a feature length in in Targets. But I, again, I'm I'm fine hovering with around illegally yours. If you really want to put it above illegally yours, I'll I'll join you on that because I do have that personal affection for it. Yeah. But you're 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 probably right in that it is like a better movie. It's it, it feels but- like a complete film it's not are we are we making
1: an objective list of the best movie or are we doing the bogdanovich list that's that's where i'm stuck
0: uh yeah it's that it's ranking the monsters argument of kaiju versus not, but bogdanovich you know how bogdanovich is the movie (laughs) kaiju versus bogdanovich
1: that's my favorite kaiju movie i
0: i mean if that's the case then illegally yours should probably be much higher you know it's it's more
1: bogdanovichian than some of these yeah um
0: but that doesn't make it, it. I don't know. Again, it's 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 a very compromised film. I think I, I think I've talked myself out of putting it above Natalie Wood. I think it is okay. A worse movie, uh, but one I want to be better. Again, it's kind of like the same thing last week where I was talking about. She's funny that way. Is that I see the Bogdanovich <laughs> spirit in these, and I want them to be better, and so I'm trying to manifest that. But I I need to face realities. Illegally Yours is a bad movie, and Natalie Wood is at least. Well made movie, okay, with some with some reservations.
1: So, this is an objective list now, um, not a bogged yeah. down list. Uh, that's a shame, but uh, we uh, we move, and there's uh, as you say about targets, maybe we've undersold it because we put a saintly switch above it, but uh, again, we move. Uh, what, what else do we have? <laughs> um, what was our second movie today? We, we've done the, a lot lately.
0: The, the second is directed by John Ford.
1: Oh, uh, that should be a more interesting to rank um because now we're in straight documentary territory which i know you were uh, a little hesitant yeah. to really reticent to put on the list there
0: i think i think the decision to do this episode is a kind of weird roller coaster because originally but when we set out to do this project you were insistent on covering documentaries yes you wanted to do these so that you could have a reason to watch these documentaries right and then a couple of weeks a couple of weeks ago you changed your mind and said you didn't want to do these anymore but by that point, I had gotten invested, and I wanted to. Get oh
1: no, to I I changed my mind because you no longer wanted to rank them. Um, was my thinking? I was like, I don't want to do a ranking show with no rankings. Like, what's the point? I, I,
0: and I understand that, but to me, I just can't compare like straight documentary to narrative films. It is, it, it feels entirely bizarre. But I'm doing it mm-hmm. because that was your insistence in order that we cover these ones. So, so here we are. With three straight up documentaries still to go, and we got to fit them in to this n- narrative, you know, uh, set here, and it's, it's hard to do. But I've done it. I've figured out where I, where okay. I feel about these, and and so we, we can get into it. First. So starting with directed by John Ford, mm-hmm. I think I think this is in the the upper echelon of. Bogdanovich films. I think it's it's truly a, a great film from him, a great documentary that this really in an in-depth profile of a compelling and interesting kind of enigmatic figure that's you know that covers the, the history incredibly well and showcases what makes them such an interesting subject.
1: I was thinking maybe we could go in between they all laughed and noises off.
0: See, uh I'm I'm even higher than that, actually. How I'm high are visible. you on this? I'm I'm like right around, not quite as good as Paper Moon. Like I think it's a genuinely great film from him. I, I don't have many reservations about it at all. Hmm. Uh, whereas something like like Mask, you know, which we have uh, in between there, Mask is a is a really great film that's also you know kind of like un, unsignificant in certain areas. It, again, we talked about how it feels. Some somewhat commercial in its execution, it's very effective, but it can be a little plain and, and absent of Bogdanovich's direction. Whereas, uh, they all laughed just below it is very distinctively Bogdanovich, but also so loose in its structure, so kind of like unfocused in you know, entirely Whiskey across that it, it feels not quite up to greatness as it could be, but still lingers in your mind and really sticks. Directed by John Ford for me is is unquestionably rated. okay, a pro filmmaker.
1: Um, I'd put it, uh, then I think I'd, Can we, I don't like it above mask. <laughs> Cause I know we have another documentary that you feel strongly about. So I, I,
0: oh, this, and this is the tough thing is that Barmanovich made two very, very good documentaries in his career. So, I mean,
1: I think this is also a functional documentary. I don't think like anything about it blew me away. Like the, the approach to directed by John Ford isn't like. Oh man that's revelatory like that's not innovative you know it's a it's the interviews that are you that know, are so great that are that are really the material
0: what's innovative what's innovative and what's revelatory is how he revisited it 30 years later and was able to incorporate new interviews with ones that were already told in a in a very seamless fashion they go back and forth between all of these different ones from different time periods even ones that were shot in the 90s before he really really started this project again and it's all incorporated into a more comprehensive whole. It fills out everything that was already really, you know, prominent and, you know, significant to begin with. It was, it was already mm-hmm. a very good document, as you can see from the interviews that he caught in 1969 and 1970. But then it was fleshed out all the more because... Although were-
1: I don't think it was that... I think I think I need the 2006 stuff. I don't think I'd ever... The other one shouldn't exist anymore. It's been well, replaced.
0: That's for, that's for, it, sure, but that doesn't mean it wasn't great for its time as well some mm-hmm. of the best part again all the, the you know all the really distinctive memorable testimonies from henry fonda and right. john wayne yeah. and Ford himself they're all existed then um but it's it's everything else that did added on to it that you know really fills out and amplifies everything that already existed and i think again as you said you know it, it, it really speaks to how the documentary could be an evolving and you know uh, you know continuing subject and how you can improve upon it you know in preceding decades i think i, I would like them to that's be that's iterated
1: I, I think all products and art need to be iterated like video games do <laughs> i mean i strongly <laughs> believe that anything made by a team should be open to iteration later and i mean like there are errors in movies and and uh horrible shit like cinema sins on the internet that like picks apart like movie making itself i think a I think people should be able to fix like errors in their art there's there's these are commercial products they're not uh paintings or something that they're a handshake between like commerce and art so i think you should be able to go in and you know uh fix your movies and and bogdanovich
0: has bogdanovich has done that throughout his career you know who's got more director's cuts you know or uh, you know fixed versions of films than he does ridley scott Um, yeah, that's yeah. probably the only answer, but who, who has done so with such success that it is better than those like, you know, Scott's track records a little more. Uh, George,
1: George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> what,
0: what, again, like when you have cases like directed by John Ford, or you have like the extended cuts of, um, you know, They All Laughed and um, a Long Last Love and such and Nickelodeon. Um, where, where they do feel like the authorial version, the improved versions, the uh, intended versions, but particularly in the case of directed by John Ford, where it was able to be improved upon because of its removal from its time period, because thirty mm. years had passed, because so much more perspective could be injected into it, I feel like that is something that's exemplary about the documentary that stand out and that makes it, you know, more of a, a singular, identifiable kind of documentary than just a standard but you know, very compelling still profile of of a figure. This, to me, is is more significant than uh, anyone else who, who could potentially make a you know film on John Ford.
1: I agree with that actually. Yeah, yeah. I think you're selling me.
0: Okay, I'm glad. So, so should we put it then above Max Mask? Do we think it's better than Max? Oh
1: God? But it, but I also went through and like ranked it. Of course, uh, among all the westerns I've ever seen, it's it's in like 60th or 70th place overall. So, i don't know
0: why you did this I, I don't again i wouldn't consider it a western but i
1: <laughs> I, I just do weird things in my rankings um, sure sure my western list is very uh volatile <laughs> let's say well, oh,
0: and, and again th- this is why i was hesitant to compare in the first place because it's a it's an odd thing to try and do to equate this to something like mass yes i get the it Priorities are just so different and, and now you see why it's it's, it's complicated but and i what, i think
1: you have a very uh formalist idea of what a documentary should be to i guess mine's uh, more open-ended uh
0: I, again i just think the the objectives in both here what they're trying to elicit are, are so completely different and the approaches are so sort of different but in in the case of john ford i think it it really excels in in ways that mask is is only you know you know be a uh, I guess not quite explain whatever the tier below exceptional would be it's, it's certainly more than competent, but as, as we talked about our mass discussion, it does feel like it's missing something it's missing something more distinctive, you, we said before. It feels like a film anyone from that time period could have made. Mask, Um, yeah. Successfully, but still. Whereas, directed by John Ford, feels like an achievement that only Bogdanovich could really succeed. I mean,
1: yeah. I think Ford only let Bogdanovich do it out of respect, right? Like, I mean, I think he already respected him. And uh, as you say, that's a sign of, uh, it's like a blessing from The Godfather or some shit. Like, you want that that sign of approval of being uh, humiliated by John Ford. Good place to be. as long as it doesn't get and about it, Paper Moon, I'm okay, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think, again, Paper Moon is just so so iconic and successful and artistically, you know, beautiful and, and brilliant and heartwarming that it's it, it's still just a bit above it. Uh, the, their successes are radically different, that it can be difficult to quantify, hmm. but I, I, I would return to Paper Moon, obviously, more often. It feels like a classic, whereas directed by John Ford feels like an exemplary documentary you know perhaps not one of the the canonized documentaries that, that you might consider not one of the all-time documentaries yeah it's not but a so art, it's not a
1: it's not an artistic documentary at all I mean it's it's yeah. very formal very instructional uh information it's an info doc
0: but but also very impressive in how it was able to you know amplify and flesh out yeah this
1: that's that's stuff just stuff not the thing ahead. i think i rate as high as you i guess we're looking for different things from documentaries though so um i, I guess like for me like a talking heads documentary gets about as high as uh i guess the next one will rank but uh, but, it's, uh,
0: but again the, the priorities there are Different, you know. In, in yeah, I mean, I don't
1: rate films so. based on like the priorities of the people making them, though. <laughs> I mean, I rate them based on like my priorities watching them, I suppose.
0: Right. Well, I, I guess that's just I don't know, a difference in perspective, you know. I, 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 you know, consider my, you know, what I prioritize in it too. But there's lots of factors you go into evaluating yeah. a film. But I think the the success of what directing directed by John Ford aims to capture, that the success of those achievements, is is unignorable. Um, and, and distinctive. Again, it's, it's a very distinctive singular documentary, I think, because of not only what it was able to capture originally, but also how it was able to improve upon that 30 years later.
1: Those interviews are so essential that if you haven't seen them on YouTube, I mean, go watch this whole movie. It's fantastic mm-hmm. uh, uh, interview footage from a lot of important players in the Western. Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for it. So I'm fine with the uh, third place. Uh, uh, very respectable choice, I believe. I I love Mask, though. So uh, I feel bad as it's yeah. slipping down the page because I liked our higher ranking for mask and felt good about
2: that. So it's still, uh, it's still in the
0: top it's still in the top five there. Still again one of the strongest contenders there. And again, like still the third narrative feature, you know, so it's yeah. still that. So I, I feel good about that. But now now we have to weigh it against Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker stream.
1: <laughs> which I was automatically putting above mask anyway. So uh Right yeah and i mean that's so, obviously better than directed by john ford by like a whole league i mean that's like a yeah, much better uh, documentary than john ford
0: i i agree with that completely in fact which is which just my problem with
1: putting john ford there because this is so high above it that i it's going to be well, like right next to it
0: well let me say i'm going to <laughs> say damn it. The, the crazy I'm, I'm going to say the crazy thing that you're certainly going to shoot bomb but i'm going to say it anyway i think this is peter bogdanovich's best movie no. <laughs> oh, no, I no, I I wholeheartedly think that. I think again, Okay. It's so comprehensive. It's so well threaded. It's so well, you know, uh, paced and put together. It's so expensive in what it's covered. and it's so encompassing of the spirit of the music and rock and roll as a whole and so detailed in everything and so affectionate. Again, it, it really is everything that I can imagine from this sort from this legacy from this era and and i'm awed by the way in which it so completely tells the story with all of these different people involved how it's able to capture the spirit of all that and the way it's able to motivate me to be as enthusiastic about the art form as everyone involved and again it's so well paced so well directed the, the talking heads are all incredibly well integrated and told you know you get the whole good side and bad sides of the story, too, to go along there. I really think it is just this perfect encapsulation of the entire history, of not just the band, but the sense of what rock and roll means as a whole.
1: I think I'd put it below Mask. (laughs) It means a little bit less to me than Mask does, but uh, it is better than
0: John You just said not two minutes ago that you you were going to put it above Mask automatically.
1: i'm just trolling you now uh I,
2: know.
1: I i think i i just don't want it above what's up doc i think i'm fine with the uh, second place would you be that's... fine with the second place
2: yes okay because i think i, I don't buy into
1: tom petty of it all as much as you do quite but I uh, i do love tom petty i've just i've heard all that music you know uh i've heard it my entire life but i i love it uh, i just love uh simulator music a little bit more and i i'm maybe I i'm that's... more of a neo young guy i'm I'm more of a traveling Wilbury guy if I'm in the, the catalogue of, of Tom Petty. You
0: know, that's that's fair, but I I think what, what for me works about it is that it's not like like Tom Petty is not the central aspect of it. Like it it no you know, yeah. it works again. It, it's it's he he is the exemplar of something greater. And if the subject were something different, you know, I think uh Bogdanovich would have just as capably been able to paint a similar portrait of the the whole scene of the whole era but it just happens to be tom petty you know we, we don't think of tom petty as this emblem of of rock and roll as a whole but i think that i doc do yeah Harry makes a test- i think it makes a testament for it i think it's you know really sells that idea but i agree uh you know when i when i was sitting here thinking about it beforehand i was like do i really think this is better than what's up doc just one of the funniest fucking movies i've ever seen and just yeah. love so holy and I, I mean, i i do but i agree with you that uh it's it's probably crazy for me to say that tom penny and the heartbreakers running down a dream is better than I, what's up doc i think i moved <laughs>
1: what's up doc within like our viewings this time into like my top 100 movies all time so i think i'm like a, a very uh adamant what's up doc is ahead of this i mean i also and, I, like-
0: and I think you're I think you're right. Uh, I yeah. think hundred percent. I, I think it's it's wrong for me to advocate for Tom Petty <laughs> as the best. But I think that's what I feel. I think that's that's, that's fair to feel, how it. I feel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't like I when don't... bands come from Florida, so I like to punish it. Um
0: You know, that's 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 fair, but the hard <laughs> really, they're they're the exception. You know, yeah, they're the they one are. the one Florida man's that will accept. <laughs>
1: the Florida but, man of the list. I, I can't allow it yeah. at first, but uh I'm
0: that's that's but i do think yeah it's it's so great and so you know mesmerizingly compelling Mm -hmm. you know again for a four and a half hour like documentary to be fantastic from beginning to end is a grand achievement in and of itself
1: yeah it's great i mean the whole journey like the like them taking like the car ride from like florida all the way to california like the way you used to have to invest in your dreams was so big and grandiose and so romantic a journey like no money just uh go travel with your friends and uh go fuck off down to california and hope to like just to land meetings like i mean you're not even guaranteed a future it's just that that gold rush of of the music exploding out of certain areas i love it um
0: that's a that's a great way of putting it i like that the gold rush. They, yeah it's jumping
1: on it's so fantastic that i i love the journey i love the the intro of him like picking up the guitar from like western movies and the one time one time his dad was nice to him he got yeah. him that i mean that says so much about his relationship to his family and uh i love all the interviews any better we have david Grohl as you say everyone from the heartbreakers uh stevie nicks we've mentioned there's just so many great rock there's, legends there's in so, there.
0: so many more than we're not even. There, yeah we're yeah. not even. Kind of it, again, like I said, yeah. the the word that keeps coming to mind with me for the documentary is comprehensive. It's it's genuinely like all inclusive. It's everything, everything that you can imagine for the story of the Heartbreakers, and, and and that's why it's one of the the best either documentaries I think I've ever seen.
1: You Run can, down a dream, such a good name for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a perfect encapsulation of their their mentality and their spirit, and the you know the idea of, again that the, the song that identifies the band as well. Yeah you know i agree so two i think is a very fitting place for this again probably unexpected Probably i doubt anyone expected anything to crap even crack even the top five again but here we have two two exemplary films that are i mean since right.
1: it since it is your favorite i do want to give you the second place although i i obviously put it a little bit lower myself i'm uh i am very just, passionate about it i just won't watch it again
0: i just just for curiosity's sake where, where would you have put it personally like still above Paper, I, uh, like below paper moon
1: i would have put it below paper moon between that and mask i believe would I be think, a, yeah yeah
0: i can i can see that and i think there's definitely pa- paper moon uh, you know again under, under normal circumstances it doesn't make sense for me to compare these but uh the, the heartbreakers just just impresses me and wows me in in such an overwhelming way that yeah. uh that again like pa- paper moon certainly you know does as well but just not not quite as incredibly
1: well see i'm glad you uh agreed to rank them because like, could you imagine not ranking his best movie <laughs> i mean uh, that seems essential to me that seems essentialist that it needs to be in there, so, uh, well yeah
0: so I'm, I'm glad we did this just for the sake of covering these but
1: why the fuck didn't we save this for last now we have another- <laughs> i know
0: i know now now this is going to go on a, on a down note we should have done the, the bogdanovich thing and taken the middle part and put it at the end but no <laughs> no we're going to stick with chronological here we're going to talk about the great buster Uh, The the last Bogdanovich.
1: Put it in the middle. I don't know.
0: Uh, Let's see. In in my per list here, I have it below St. Lee's Switch and above. She's funny that way.
1: That's funny. That's around where I was looking too. Uh, I'm fine with that. (laughs) Let's call it good. Okay.
0: All right. Then we've done it. We've ranked every single Peter Bogdanovich film. Calvin, would you like to see us out by listing all of those for us?
1: Okay, so wait, uh, just, just to uh, clarify it. we're doing a saintly switch, then we're doing Buster, the great Buster.
0: Uh, I think so. I'm trying to remember what our... Uh, I just want to clarify that this is okay. the uh, yeah.
1: final ranking. We're not coming back to this. So.
0: I know, I know. Let me double check. Are you, are you type, let me see here again. Do, 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 do. Yep, that looks correct. to me. Okay,
1: uh, that's where I wanted it to, uh, coincidentally. Perfect. So. Uh, all right, what's up, Doc? Tom Petty, Run Down a Dream, Paper Moon, directed by John Ford, Mask, They All Laughed, Noises Off, To Serve With Love 2, St. Jack, The Last Picture Show, At Long Last Love, Nickelodeon, A Saintly Switch, The Great Buster, She's Funny That Way, Daisy Miller, Targets, The Cat's Meow, The Thing Called Love, Texasville, Natalie Wood, Illegally Yours, Naked City, Blessed Assurance, Hustle, and Rescuers. That's a list.
0: There we go. That is every film directed by Peter Bogdanovich. I'm so glad that we chose to cover these. Um, I'm so glad we've done such a comprehensive covering of all of these films. And Mm. I hope that everyone listening really got a fuller sense of Bogdanovich's uh, sensibilities as a filmmaker and the different periods of his work and how um, you know how encompassing all of those different ones were you know particularly the the high points the the definitive times and the more odd moments you know the the uncovered ones that are kind of just buried within there and uh, i'm glad we covered them and highlighted them in in such great detail and have truly done everything there what? there is more. There I guess yeah. there's like the TV TV episodes he directed. There's books he's written. You know, there's all sorts of you know smaller interviews you can find on Criterion Discs or whatever for introductions of various, you know, classic movies and stuff he did. He was truly, you know, uh
1: Prolific. You know, ex- yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. But uh I, I hope that we have covered a great Deal a great depth of his, you know, oeuvre
1: here, and I think we justified this. our format for the podcast for the year. I feel like this especially has given mm-hmm. um, credence to our plan to go through director filmographies. I feel like we didn't learn much about Catherine Bigelow that we might not have already known, but I've learned a whole lot about Bogdanovich and what I really think of him and uh, and how endeared I am by his uh, stylist choices, uh, his throwbacks to the old stuff. I think I appreciate old movies more because he appreciates them. I think uh, I, think he brings me into a, a really beautiful point where I'm like, a, I like cinema even more for having experienced everything this guy has to say.
0: I, th- I think that's a, a wonderful testimony to his ability to uh, to affect us and to be an ambassador for for all of those films and to show just how timeless and enduring uh, the, that spirit of, of old Hollywood is, both through his, his works and championing and preserving and you know, speaking out uh, and, and, you know, working towards uh, showing all of these old movies, but also through his own works and, and, you know, kind of revitalizing those old styles, even when they're less successful, you know, they still have that distinctive, uh, you know, uh, alluring quality to them that I think, uh, you know, really compels and endures. And, and those are what makes his works so distinctive and individual and, and Bogdanovichian. <laughs>
1: And having you over last week, like that's that's not something I'll forget that we've done on the podcast. That's one of those episodes that's going to stay with me. And when, when people ask for an episode, I'm going to give them the, the fourth one of our Bogdanovich series, because yeah. that, that was a very special moment.
0: So. It's, it's honestly a major highlight for me, for the, the website as a whole, but particularly, of course, for this podcast. And again, something I thought was so vital and important yeah. to do, to, to cover this period that literally... Nobody else. Nobody has has given any attention to.
2: Certainly um, not
1: on podcasts. Yeah.
0: I, I think at any capacity again in all of yeah. the research I did for this, which was a lot, as, as I'm sure you can tell by the you know intros and such. Uh, mm-hmm. When when people ask about them, they they ask without knowledge because they they don't know much about. Them. They they know they happened, but you know to have the access to see all of those and, and kind of contextualize them is is only you know kind of recently something that's capable of doing. We were only able to do so because we had the resources near us to go and seek out these Yeah.
1: Films. Some people somewhere in the country probably most places in the country can't see all those films. I mean no, the way we no, did. Not
0: even not, not without even. pirating. Yeah. Well even with pirating. I mean even with pirating
1: we at, I know we looked I looked a little <laughs>
0: yeah. I looked just to see the
1: availability before we went and got them legally and goddamn it's you can't go find those some of them. Right.
0: It's it it would take some real real digging real like hardcore well john lafitte pirating you know <laughs>
1: you'd have to you'd have to like go buy like 20 copies of like the pete rose movie i mean you don't want it to go that path that's the only way i could see you getting if, it if you're in middle of. if America. you can
0: even find it like yeah. if someone is selling that on ebay you know that's like, the
1: only you, way yeah
0: yeah yeah it's it would be such a hunt to do that and so we're just very fortunate that we had the resources available to us to do that and i hope that by, you know, covering those, we, we've helped flesh out part of Bogdanovich's, you know, life story, his narrative that has otherwise been overlooked. And it was such a rewarding experience that I hope we can have similar, you know, uh, revelations, similar, you know, conclusions with future filmmakers. And yeah, I agree with you that this, I think it really, you know, sells the, the idea of, of why this change in format is worth pursuing.
1: Yeah, we had done Rankin and Best and Catherine Bigelow, now uh, Peter Bogdanovich. That's like, uh, we're covering a wide uh, array of film now. Uh, we, I mean, we've done that in three months. What would have taken, you know, like a whole year of uh, of episodes, the way we were going, one a week.
0: Yeah, and while it has been a little more taxing, I'll admit Very it, taxing.
1: It been, that uh, one night you came over I uh, and slept uh, and we had to watch the six Bogdanovich movies was yeah. a hell of a thing. Great I time, think, though. I
0: think our, our next filmmaker is going to give us a little bit of a reprieve, and then hopefully we won't exhaust ourselves as we did with this as much, but it was, it was still very rewarding, but I'll be, I'm excited to announce, are we going to announce the next one here? Should we do um, that? Is
1: it is it time to say glory to mother Russia? No, no. <laughs> um, glory no. to mother France.
0: Yeah. Mother France. We will be doing uh, the six films of Jean Cocteau. That, that that's sounds great. <laughs> yeah.
2: What a good change up from what is it like thirty about Davidovich, however yeah. many.
0: Artist in a different time period, in a different you know area of, of the world as well, a different you know part that I think people recognize and appreciate, but probably don't know all of. There's still plenty for us both to explore, as well as the first guest we're going to have on for this series. We'll be bringing in Stephen. Oh yeah. The, from the other various twin geeks podcasts and good friend and previous guest as well to talk about Jean Cocteau and his you know uh, various films with us.
1: Yeah, just wait till you find out about his um Tom Petty and the heartbreaker stock. It's crazy.
0: <laughs> I I would watch that. That would be fascinating. But yeah, so we'll be taking the next week off of course to prepare for all of that and then we'll be back to cover the films of Jean Cocteau.
1: All right, thank you so much David.
0: Thank you, Calvin. This has been such a rewarding discussion as always, and I'm looking forward to continuing on.
2: Conversations And I post them online for entertainment It's nice to know At least you listen to the show Because it's quite the possibility That nobody is listening to me In this modern world Things have changed Everybody's entertaining Who's being entertained Thank you For listening